It's my privilege to uh, continue our Of God and Kings series, and we're working our way through the book of First and Second Kings, and we have kind of done a quick survey of First Kings, now we're in Second Kings, and as we, uh, as we kind of wander through this passage, uh, you, you probably noticed this one's a little action-packed, right? A little, little bit of action going on here, um, fire falling down from heaven, that's two straight weeks in a row we've had fire from heaven. That's pretty good, right? And um, as, we, as we look at this story, you know, at first glance, it's kind of like, okay, this is an interesting story. It illustrates the power of God. Um, but what, what are we really going to take away from this? And so we're going to walk through this story together and talk about some things. But the second half of the message today, we're going to ask some questions. And these are questions that I want to talk through, but I also want us to really really internalize and ask ourselves these questions. So we'll get there in a minute, but Ahaziah, right, he follows Ahab, his father, as king of Israel. And if you can remember, the the kingdom is separate now, right? We have Israel, which is ten tribes in the north, located in Samaria, sometimes actually referred to as Samaria as a nation. And then you have Judah, the two tribes in the south. Now Judah somewhat follows God still. Some of the kings do. In fact, currently during this time period, they have a a very godly king. But in the north, none of the 20 kings follow God at all. In fact, Ahaziah's father, Ahab, is considered the most wicked of all 20 of these kings. And so, what led to his, his quick demise, I mean, other than obviously falling through the lattice on, on, on the top of his palace, what led to his quick demise? Well, a couple things. Number one, the sins of his father catch up to him, right? As we just said, Ahab was considered the most wicked of all the kings. He was married to Jezebel. To this day, that name is associated with evil, right? In fact, Sometimes people will call an evil woman a, a Jezebel, right? I mean, when, when your name becomes a phrase, you know you've accomplished something. She accomplished wickedness, okay? And so Jezebel and Ahab were so wicked. In fact, the entirety, for the most part, of Elijah's career as a prophet is Elijah interacting with Ahab and Jezebel trying desperately to get the nation of Israel to listen in a little bit. And at the very end of Ahab's life, towards the very end, Elijah has prophesied that him and all his family will die, violent deaths, be devoured by dogs. Which, in a Jewish culture, would have been the worst of the worst. Right? It would have meant no possibility for them to enter the afterlife. It would have been been horrendous. But at the very end, when Elijah is pointing out Ahab's wickedness, Ahab finally is actually broken over his sins. He tears his clothes. And he humbles himself before God. And there's this brief moment where God says, because Ahab has humbled himself, I am not going to allow this to happen in his lifetime. 
I will not completely take the throne away from his family. I will not wipe his family off the face of the earth, but this next generation I will. And so Ahaziah kind of has it in before he ever gets started. There's already this, God has already kind of said, because of the sins here, Ahaziah really didn't have a chance. So we start out there, and then right away, Ahaziah, we don't have a lot about him, just this one chapter in Scripture, but he doesn't learn from the past. Right? You, you remember the sermon from last week, right? Last week, we have a scenario where um, Elijah sets up this contest, right? It's him against 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets from other gods. And so he says, listen, I want you to cry out to your gods. You're going to build this altar and cry out to Baals and say, bring fire down and take this offering. And they do it all day and night. They're dancing crazy. They're cutting themselves and nothing. To the point that Elijah is actually making fun of them. I don't know if Pastor Andy mentioned it to you, but there's actually a phrase there in the Hebrew, in, in the Bible. It's one of my favorite in all of Scripture. It's, it's really the only good reason I learned Hebrew in seminary. But Elijah is actually making fun of them to the point where he says, he says, maybe Baal's on the toilet. Maybe he's busy on the toilet. They translated it in English, maybe he's like asleep. But that's what it really means in the Hebrew, just so you know. Free of charge, guys. All right. And so Elijah's even making fun of him. And then Elijah goes and he builds an altar. And not only does he just build this altar, but he pours water all over it. Right? I'm not an expert, but water isn't the best thing to start a fire with. Right? And he pours water all over it. And then he cries out to God and immediately fire consumes not only the altar and the sacrifice, but the dust around the area and all of the water is consumed by this fire. And so Ahaziah would have been there for that. And yet he's already forgotten that Baal has no power, but God has infinite power. And so something bad happens, and what does he do? He cries out to the God of the Philistines, the God of a Philistine city called Ekron, Baalzebub. And he sends his messengers to, to consult with him instead of consulting with God. So he doesn't learn from the past. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of the upper room in Samaria and he injured himself. So he sent his messengers saying, go consult, consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. Again, this is a god of one of the five Philistine cities that would have been just to the north of them. And so God, our God, the Almighty God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a jealous God. He says that about himself. Not jealous in a negative sense like we talk about, but jealous in that he wants worship ascribed to him alone. And so the angel says to Elijah, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to consult Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? It's as if Ahaziah has completely forgotten about what just happened and he's still going back to the Baal. Ahaziah also reaches his demise quickly because he values pagan tradition over the power of God. Now, 
You have to understand a little bit about the pagan tradition to, for this to make sense. But basically back then, they believed that if someone prophesied something, you could get them to recant the prophecy, then it wouldn't happen. Or if you were able to kill the prophet before it happened, then it wouldn't happen. This is part of the pagan tradition of the day. And so, so basically, when Ahaziah sends a captain and 50 guards to Elijah, they're not trying to just like enjoy a cup of coffee together. They're trying to forcibly get him to recant what he has prophesied, that Ahaziah is going to die in his bed, or they're going to kill him, thinking that in this pagan tradition, the prophecy won't happen if he's dead. And so when Elijah is sitting on top of that mountain, he knows this. He knows that the captains aren't there just to talk. They're there to try to force him to recant his prophecy, or more likely they're there probably to kill him. And so it seems, you know, in first reading of this passage, it seems kind of violent. You know, Elijah's just bringing fire down and killing everyone, right? But there's, there's kind of a, a reason to this because they were actually after him to kill him. And so when he says, if I truly am a man of God, this is going to happen, it's serving a dual purpose. Number one, it's re-illustrating the power of God. It's almost giving Ahaziah a second chance. Like, do you remember when God called fire down and soaked up the offering and the Baals didn't do that? Do you remember Ahaziah? And it's also saving Elijah's life. So there's a dual purpose there. And Ahaziah is put all his eggs in this basket of pagan tradition and bales. And he's totally, just like his father Ahab, totally rejected the God of Israel. Most of these leaders, these kings in Israel, they, they embraced idols, and they did things that were wicked. I mean, we, we already talked about this 0 for 20 in the northern kingdom. But most of them still held on to this, this sort of cultural faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But not Ahab and not Ahaziah. They rejected God completely. He said to Elijah, a captain with 50 of his men, again, to go after him, to kill him, to get him to recant. And finally, Ahaziah refuses to repent over his sins. The one saving grace for Ahab, right, at the end of his life, when Elijah's saying these awful things are going to happen, what does Ahab do? Tears his clothes. He's humbled. Humbled before God. Ahaziah experiences no such thing. To the very end, he's in the face of God saying, I'm going to consult Baal. Baal will save me. Baal will be my answer, not you, God. And so he refuses, ultimately, to repent or be broken at all over his sins. So we have this story, right? And it's an interesting story. It's probably not one you heard in Sunday school. Not a lot of teachers tell you about the story when, you know, a hundred guards were consumed by fire. You know, that's just not a, a common one. They want kids to go home crying, <laughs> Right? The important thing is, what does this mean for, for you and I today? And so I, I want us to kind of walk through these questions, like I said, and, and talk about this a little bit. What are some questions we can ask of ourselves, reflecting on this passage of Scripture, that are things that we can learn 
from the Bible. And I think this is, anytime you read scripture, this is an important thing to do. But the first thing is this. The first question I want to ask ourselves is, are we seeking out and listening to the right counsel? Right? There's always times in our lives where, where we are going to reach out to others, that we're going to talk to other people, that we're going to value their opinions, that we're going to, maybe we're faced with a tough decision or there's something going on in our life and we want help. Who are we going to in those times? For Ahaziah, he went in the exact wrong place, right? He had access to God through Elijah. He had seen the demonstrated power of this over and over and over again. And yet he called out to a, an idol. An idol from another nation. And so in times like this, who, whose counsel do we seek out? I learned a lot about this um, from a very good friend of mine named David Grant. And it's ironic, actually, as I was, as I was writing this, um, this sermon, an email popped up on my screen, and it was from him. And uh, David Grant it does, has taught me a lot about the value of, of having this, this close circle around you to help you and advise you. And so, literally, this email pops up, and I look at it, and, and um, I, you know, I, the way I'm wired, I need distractions when I'm working anyways. It kind of helps me, actually. And so, I'm reading this email, and I realize... He's actually doing this very thing in this email. He, had, he has this important talk coming up that he's giving. He works at a, a large church called Twelve Stone up in uh, the Atlanta area. And he's giving this important talk to their leadership. And so he sent this, his talk written out to me and three other people because he wanted our counsel. He wanted advice. He wanted to know, hey, what do you think about this? And I remember uh, we used to, pastor together at, a, at a, a large, another large church in Atlanta, and when we were there, I remember him saying, you know, as pastors, we do a pretty good job of seeking out spiritual counsel. We recognize that's important, but we were at a church where, um, at least for me, it was kind of a different role for the first time. A lot of my ministry had been very, very hands-on and active and, and being really in the trenches with people, but this was enough of a large church that the reality is all I pretty much did at this church was speak and supervise staff because I had a staff of about 20 people. And so that was kind of new for me. And he said, you know what we really need to do is seek out mentors in the area of managing people. They don't really teach you that in seminary. And so that was, that was so wise and so so, you know, I did, I sought out this guy, Alf, and, and Alf was a man who taught me so much about what it meant to manage people, to supervise people. Because the reality is, I had had maybe a staff of one or two before, but 20, that was a big difference. And so it was a different world, and so it's just so important to seek out the right kind of counsel in our lives. We have so many messages, more than any time in history, you have different messages and people pressing on you from social media, from television, from radio, from the circles that you run in, right? And all these different worldviews are being pushed in on you. And so where are you really going to find truth, to seek the right kind of counsel? 
Do you have those few close people in your life that are your go-to people that you can count on, that you can rely upon? The second question to ask ourselves is, do we learn from our past mistakes or sins, right? We all make mistakes. That's part of being human. But are we learning from the past? Ahaziah refused to learn from the past, right? He had just seen a clear demonstration of God is superior to Baal in his life that he should very clearly remember. And yet, when faced with a choice, what did he do? He reaches out to Baal instead of the God of his forefathers. I remember um, when I was in high school, one of the, one of the last uh, girlfriends I had before uh, my wife, Sarah. And, you know, we've been dating for, I don't know, six months or so, and, and I just kind of realized there wasn't a future. I don't know if any of you ever had any relationships like that where, you know, it's not like, you know, this is fine, this is okay, but I knew there was no future in it, right? And so I said, you know what, what we should, you know, we, we should probably break up. And I remember I went to go, uh, to, to go break up with her. And, uh, you know, you know being, the, being the gentleman that I was, of course, I took her to a nice, uh, nice quiet location. We went to the beach. And we got there and we sat down. And, you know, I was, I was there. I was, I was going to, you know, obviously craft some very elegant words to let her down easily until she started kissing me. And somehow I never got around to the breakup. Right? And so I did this again. I'm like, okay, note to self, probably don't go to the beach. And so I took her to a park. And you know, darn it, if the same thing didn't happen again. And so finally I said, I've got to learn from my mistakes here. I've got to learn from the past. Um, I have to take her to a public place. And so unfortunately, I broke up with this poor girl at the Boynton Mall. I didn't know what else I was going to do, guys. But, you know, kind of a silly example, but we all have things in our past, right, where we, where we have made mistakes, where we failed. And are we learning from those? Ahaziah did not learn from his mistakes. And so he was doomed to repeat them. And ultimately, that led to his demise. Not only his death, but it ultimately also led to his name not being able to be carried on. He died so young that he had no, no heirs. And so the things in our, we're all going to fail, right? We, we all fall short. This, this book tells us that we're going to mess up. But what do we do when we do mess up? How do we respond? How do we learn from it? And finally, are we broken over our sins? When we do fall short, when we don't measure up to God's standards, what is our response? How do we react? You know, every week of this series, I've talked about how grace is bigger, God's grace is bigger than our sin, right? That comes primarily, that concept comes from, well, it comes from throughout the book, but If we read uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 20. And Romans 5, verse 20 says, 
says nothing right now. Aha. It says the law was brought in so the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Right? It's the idea that, that God's grace is bigger than our sin, and even as sin increases, grace increases all the more. And so the temptation would be to say, okay, well, sin is not that big of a deal. Because God's grace is so big, but, but Paul doesn't stop at Romans 5, right? He spends the entire next three chapters of the Bible, and I highly encourage you to go home and read Romans 6 through 8, some of the best stuff. And in Romans chapter 6 through chapter 8, he goes on over and over to say, yes, God's grace is bigger than our sin, but that does not mean that we have a license to sin. That means when we sin, we should be broken over it. And Paul, in chapter 7 of Romans, spells out his own journey. And he talks about how he cannot stop sinning. And that even as he wants to, sin is right there with him and he, he hates it. He goes as far as to say, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, what happens is that when we sin and when we truly are broken over it, God gives us the strength to gradually more and more, little by little, overcome our sin. Charles Swindoll is a great preacher, and he, he tells a story to explain what brokenness over sin really looks like. And he tells a story of when he was a young pastor and he would cherish the time that he got with his family to play with his kids. And he was in his yard one, one day. And in his yard, he was, he was trying to play uh, soccer with his kids. And there they were, and, and he got the ball. And he said, you know, he, he never was a great soccer player, but he had a pretty good foot. He could kick it pretty hard. And so he was trying to show his kids how hard he could kick it. And he, he went and he went to kick the ball as hard as he could and he, he sure nailed it. And he watched as the soccer ball, like a heat-seeking missile, headed towards his two-year-old's face. And maybe you've had a moment like that as a parent. It's happened to me once or six times. Um, but he, he said it was just like slow motion and he was just so upset and agonized as this ball is going towards his toddler's face and it, and it hits him. And of course, you know, you know what happens then. I mean, three things. The bloody nose, the crying, and even more important, the angry wife, right? But he said, you know, as a, as a father, as a parent who loves your child desperately, if you accidentally hurt them, you're devastated, Right? You're absolutely crushed and, you, and you're so upset. And he said, that feeling, that emotion is what it's like to be broken over your sin. To realize that when we sin, God is hurt. When we sin, it hurts the person who loves us best. He said, that emotion that feeling is what it's like to be broken over your sin. As we're broken over our sin, 
God more and more and more gives us the grace, gives us the strength to little by little overcome it. We can't outsend God's grace. But when we experience this brokenness over our sin, God does something special and unique in our lives. When we started this series, I said that's the one thing that set David apart from everyone else, all the rest of these kings, right? He wasn't better. He did some really awful things. But David was broken over his sin. So are we surrounding ourselves with people that can help us make those, those good choices? Are we learning from our past mistakes and are we broken over our sin? Amen.